Lord God, we give you thanks that your, uh, even your foolishness is wiser than the wisdom of men. That you have gathered us here to take a look at your word because it's in your word that we do indeed find truth and light and life. And so, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work among us this morning, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, open hearts and minds to understand and receive the message that you have for us this morning. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as we've been going throughout this Easter series, we've actually been looking both ways. We've been looking to the past and we've been looking to the future. And it all began on that Easter Sunday when we looked at the resurrection of Jesus, looking back to that very, very first Easter, but then seeing how the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus actually do provide hope for our future because they show us that our death is not final. That though our world would say that when you die, that's it, it's over the end, what we believe because, is that because Jesus is raised from the dead, we too will rise to newness of life. My death is not final. And then over the past two weeks, we've kind of looked at our past and our present. In week two, we looked at this idea that our past is not fatal. And again, that's something that kind of flies in the face of what our culture tells us. Our culture says what goes around comes around. You reap what you sow. Your past will always catch up to you. You can never escape it. And what we say is we say, yes, your past has shaped who you are, but it does not have to determine your future. That in Christ, your past, you are not a slave to your past, but you can have a new beginning, a fresh start with God. And then last week, we looked at the idea of suffering. And again, our world looks at suffering and says that suffering is pointless. It's fruitless. It's something to be avoided. And if you can't avoid it, it's something to be endured. But it has no meaning, no purpose, no significance. And what we saw is that in God's hands, even suffering and pain can bring forth fruit and beauty and new life. We've seen how the resurrection helps us to reframe and rethink about our past and our present. But now, starting this week and going into next week, we're going to see that uh, this resurrection power actually has an influence on our future and where we're going. That it leads to a transformed life and a life lived on mission with God. And so this weekend, we're going to look at that, uh, that one other foolish belief that we proclaim as Christians, and that is that my behavior is not fixed. We dare to say that our behavior is not fixed, that change is possible. And that seems foolish to our world because the reality is, is that change is very, very, very hard. I mean, this is part of the reason why so many New Year's resolutions fail after about two weeks or one month that the vast majority of gym memberships are always purchased in January and they're very, very rarely, if ever, take, uh, taken advantage of. That almost 75% of gym memberships purchased in the new year go unused. And it's because our culture would say your behavior is fixed. But actually, the more and more you go along, the more and more entrenched you become in who you are. The change is not easy. And yet we dare to say it's possible not only possible, but desirable, that God loves to bring about transformation. And there's something about that message that's appealing. Because on the one hand, our culture says change is very, very hard, and yet we all deep down desire it. And you don't have to think too hard to see the truth of this. I mean, if you just go to Amazon.com and you type in self-help, 
and you hit enter, what you will find is 70,000 results in the book section alone. 70,000, which means that while change is difficult and while our culture looks at change and says that's really hard, at the same time, there's this interest in change. There's a desire for change. There's a whole industry built around change. That if you want to experience change, you can just go and purchase one of the 70,000 titles that's out there to help you. And it gets, and you, and you start to see this desire pop up even more when you go to your local bookstore. I mean, just take a look at the shelf that used to be labeled self-help in Barnes and Noble. It's now called self-transformation. And if you go down the shelf, you find title after title after title after title talking about transformation and what it means to change and to experience change in your life. You see, people desire transformation and change, but it's difficult. It's hard. One of the things I find funny is you notice what section is next to the self-transformation section? It's the divination section. It's almost like our culture says, change is, uh, change is desirable. We should want self-transformation. But in case it gets a little hard, the divination section is here to help you too. You can just get one off of each shelf because it's almost like we acknowledge that though we desire change, it's very, very difficult. It's incredibly hard to achieve self-transformation. And the question is why? Why is it so hard? I mean, if, if in my heart and in my mind I desire to be someone different, why is it so difficult for me to actually experience change and transformation? Why is it so difficult to change my behavior? And the answer that Scripture gives us is because there's actually a war taking place in our hearts and in our minds. That while there's a part of us that deeply desires to experience a new life, that while there's a part of us that looks at our past and looks at our past mistakes and our past behaviors and says, I want to live a new life. I want to stop falling into the same old temptations. I want to stop going to the same old kinds of unhealthy relationships. I want to stop wrestling with that addiction or that struggle in my life. There's another part of us deep down that says, but I like it. I like those kinds of relationships. I like those little vices on a Friday night. I like these things. They're pleasurable. They feel good. And it's just easier to go with the flow. That while we might tell our neighbors and our friends, yeah, I want to start fresh. I want to start new. There's a part of us deep down that says, no, you don't. No, you don't. You kind of like the way things are going. You kind of like looking down on other people. You kind of like how life is, is coasting along. There's this battle that takes place within us. On the one hand, we want to change. On the other hand, we don't. And so self-transformation is difficult. Seems almost impossible, except for those very few people who are actually able to attain it, those exceptional people. And this struggle, this internal battle is nothing new. In fact, Christians also wrestle with it. In fact, St. Paul, you know, one of the guys who wrote a vast majority of our New Testament acknowledges how difficult it is to change. He acknowledges this internal war. I mean, listen to what he says in Romans 7. He says, I don't even understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate is what I do. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, that's what I keep on doing. 
See, Paul acknowledges that there's this war. There's a part of me. My head says, yeah, I want to be a new person. My heart says, no, you don't. Things are fine. And we go back and forth, back and forth, and never seem to change. And yet at the same time, Paul is also the one who wrote these words from 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And so my question is, how can Paul say that? How is it on the one hand that he can acknowledge the war that's being waged in our hearts and minds, and on the other hand, still insist change is possible? Your behavior is not fixed. You can become a new person. How does that change come about? Well, there are answers out there. I mean, if you were to, to really go into the research and take a look at those people who've studied change, they will tell you that there are certain common factors. That there have been many books over the past several years that have been written, um, scientific studies in which they've gathered together people who've experienced freedom from addictions or who've actually changed behaviors, who've lost weight, who've, who've gotten into better relationships and so on and so forth. And they've done countless studies upon studies upon studies upon studies and said, what are the common factors here that actually lead to change? And in fact, in, in one book, uh, this book, Your Best Year Ever by Michael Hyatt, he kind of studies change and he notes that there are a couple of common ingredients for people who actually see change within their lives. And what's interesting about what he notes is that a lot of this stuff, there's actually some godly wisdom to it. He says that some of the common ingredients that lead to change and transformation are one, being reconciled to your past. But secondly, you have to have a clear vision of the future and of where you're going. You have to find your why, why you're doing what you're doing. And then finally, it's, uh, the journey is better in the company of friends. It's easier to experience transformation when you walk that road with other people. And I said that this, is, this has some godly wisdom to it because these are things that Scripture says. But actually, if you were to look at Scripture, you would find that it is important to be reconciled to your past, that you have to, you have to square with what's happened in the past, but at the, other, at the same time, you have to experience forgiveness and freedom. Paul actually says it in what we read earlier this morning from Romans 6. He says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument for righteousness, for sin is no longer your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. So Paul is saying there, is he's saying, yes, you may have made mistakes in your past, but those are forgiven. That yes, you've fallen short, but God has covered them over through Jesus Christ. You don't need to let your past define you. Likewise, this, this truth of, of having a, a clear vision of the future is, again, something that Scripture says. I mean, listen to Hebrews 12, starting in verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart." See, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is he's saying we have to have a clear vision of our future, of what we're running towards. And he says, and that vision is Jesus. 
Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, and, and it's our calling to become more like him, to, to, to grow, in, uh, grow up into his image, to run that race that's ahead of us. So fix your eyes on Jesus so that you don't grow weary and lose heart. Likewise, this final bit of wisdom about change says that the journey is better in the company of friends. And again, that's something Scripture would affirm. You go to Ephesians chapter 4, which we read earlier. It says this, So Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You see all those like together words there? God has given these people to encourage you so that the whole body of Christ, that's all of us, together grow into maturity. See, there's a little bit of godly wisdom in this, right? Got to be reconciled to your past. You have to have a, a clear vision of the future, of the why. Why do you desire change? And what are you running toward? And finally, this idea of the journey being better in the company of friends, you need accountability. You need people in your life who can encourage you when the going gets tough, who can model for you what it lo uh, looks like to live in Christian maturity. But I would argue that as good as those things are, they're not enough. That as good as those things are, there's a missing ingredient which is absolutely essential if we are going to experience real transformation. It's something that has to go deep down to our heart. Because if the heart is where that war is being waged between our old self and our new self, we need a solution that goes so much deeper than simply changing our external patterns and behaviors and habits. We need something that gets down to the root and puts that conflict to rest. And the answer that God gives is he says, that thing which I've given you is nothing less than myself. One of the things that scripture tells us is that God himself sets up residence in our hearts. That the moment you become a Christian, the moment you are baptized, God makes your heart his home. Your internal life becomes his dwelling place, his temple, which means that all of his power, all of his glory, his very personality and presence are with you every single step of the way. And because of that, you can bear fruit that lasts. I love what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. He says that we have the fruit, the, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against these things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. See, what he's saying is he's saying that battle between the old person and the new person is done. It's over. That those who've been crucified with Christ Jesus have put to death their old self with its passions and desires. That God himself, by dwelling in our hearts, has now put an end to that conflict, and he now gives us his power that we might bear fruit that lasts. And I don't know about you, but I look at that description of the fruits of the Spirit and I say, that is what I want to be.
That is the type of person that I desire to be. That's the life that I want to live. And what God says is he says, my spirit within you makes it so. Jesus himself put it this way. I love this. Listen to this. He says, this is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit. And I love that too because what it's telling us is that God our father when we struggle with temptation, when we battle against those behaviors that we just can't seem to escape, that he looks down on us and he doesn't wave his finger and say, tisk tisk, shame on you for not getting it right again. No, what Jesus is saying is to his Father's glory that we bear much fruit. And what he means by that is God is glorified when he shows himself to be our good father who's rooting for us to bear fruit. That when we struggle, our father in heaven is looking at us saying, you can do it. Come on. I believe in you. I'm with you every step of the way. I can help. I will walk with you so that you bear fruit which lasts. That God is our biggest cheerleader in this journey of transformation that he's empowering it by dwelling within our hearts and minds, bearing fruit. And what I love about this image of fruit is I don't think either Paul or Jesus made a mistake when they used this image. That when they said, you want to know what transformation looks like? It looks like bearing fruit, that that was a very intentional choice. And here's what I mean. I'm not a farmer, but every once in a while, my family and I do like to go out to a farm in order to do like some apple picking. Like we'll go to an orchard and pick some apples or we'll go, you know, pick some strawberries and stuff like that. And there's one thing that I have never seen when I've gone to an apple orchard. And that is an apple doing pull-ups. I have never seen an apple doing pull-ups to get into shape or to grow. I never see strawberries gathering together and drafting up a five-year change plan. Okay, oranges don't join CrossFit. Lemons don't do P90X. Blueberries don't go to counselors. And watermelons don't go on a diet. Okay, these things, when, when fruit grows, it doesn't grow by the fruit's effort. But rather, the fruit has one job and one job only in order to grow, and that is to cling to the, to the branch that nourishes it to cling to the branch that nourishes it. And that's exactly what Jesus says. He says, you want to know how you can experience lasting fruit and its growth in your life? It's simply by clinging to the branch that nourishes you. He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. And if you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And if you remain in me, and my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Jesus says, you want to experience transformation? You want to be free of those old ways of living? All you have to do is abide. Cling to me. Let the Spirit do his work in your heart and in your mind. Get up every day and just acknowledge the fact that you need nourishment and what you will find is it is there. It is provided in abundance. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit.
think about that for a second. God the Father is rooting for you. Jesus the Son has given you his love and and provides you with nourishment. The Holy Spirit dwells within your heart and your mind so that when those temptations come along, you don't face them alone. You face them with the almighty God of the universe. And I love how Jesus says that that relationship and that fruit is nourished. He says, to abide, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can ask whatever you wish and it will be given. This is a part of the reason why we encourage people to study God's word. To daily be in God's word is because Jesus is saying, that's where the nourishment comes from. I mean, think about this. God's primary way of working is by speaking. That in the beginning before the universe was created and there was only darkness, it said that the spirit of God hovered over the waters and the Lord spoke and said, let there be light and there was light. And then the rest of the creation count is God speaking words and stuff happening. That God speaks and divides the light and the darkness. That he speaks and the waters above the earth and the waters below are divided. That he speaks and the seas and the oceans are put in their place. That land is formed. That trees and fruits and plants are developed. That he speaks and the sun, moon, and stars are scattered among the heavens. That he speaks and animals are created, birds and fish, and that he speaks and makes us in his image. That when God's word is spoken, when God's word is heard, life happens. And Jesus is saying, when you abide in my word, when you rest in my word, that same life which created the heavens and the earth is now transforming you. That God looks into the darkness of our hearts and minds and says, let there be light and there's light. That God looks at our struggles and says, let there be victory and there is victory. That God looks at our shriveled up lives and says, let them bear fruit and fruit is born. And I don't know about you, but this is something that's been messing with me this week. That as I've been studying this passage and thinking about all the times in which I've wrestled with with behaviors or patterns or things that just seem impossible to overcome, this week as I've meditated on this, this has just added newfound energy to my life. Because I've sat there and said, okay, I'm going to start my day simply reading God's word and praying. I'm going to simply start my day by saying, Holy Spirit, I know you are with me. Bear fruit today. Bear the fruit that is required, that I could face anything that comes my way. I have to tell you, there has been a deeper, sweeter sense of God's presence than there has been in all the previous weeks leading up to it. Jesus says, abide. Cling to the vine that nourishes you. Let my words abide in you and you can ask anything you want and it will be done for you. That any pattern, any temptation, any past cycle that you've had a hard time breaking out of, Jesus says, ask and it will be provided. Let there be light and there was light. Let there be fruit and there was fruit. Jesus says, this is why I came, that they may have life and have it abundantly. But more than that, do you notice who Jesus is talking to? He's talking to his disciples. 
He's talking to this, this community of faith. And when he says you, it's not a singular you. It's a y'all. Okay, see, in Greek, they have like a plural and a singular you. We just have what the Texans have given us, y'all. He's saying y'all will bear fruit. And the point is simply this. He says, don't and don't do this journey alone. That the Holy Spirit works within you, but he also works through you to the blessing and benefit of others. That, they, that God bears fruit in y'all, in y'all's life, in, in your life together. And so there's this encouragement to indeed walk that journey of faith side by side, reminding each other that God's presence is there because wherever two or three are gathered, Jesus says, there I am in their midst. And this is part of the reason why we as a church encourage you to get into community, that you don't grow spiritually unless you're connected relationally. That's part of the reason why this May, we're actually going to do something that we haven't done before. We're doing a discipleship summit on May 12th. I'm going to give you some details about this later on in the service, but here's the reason we're doing this. This is our opportunity for all four of our sites to come together and to say, what does it really mean to walk with Jesus? What does it mean to bear fruit as a church? What does it mean to be a community of disciples who make disciples, who are walking in step with the Spirit and encouraging one another in the calling that God has given us? And so we want to invite you to join us. If you're looking for a community like that, come come and join us on May 12th. Live in community with each other because it's as we cling, as we cling to Jesus Christ who is the vine, that transformation happens. And while the world may say that it's foolish, we believe that our behavior is not fixed because the Holy Spirit who bears fruit is indeed at work among us. May it be so, Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we say, Amen.